0: In 2016, the pastors of this church attended Together for the Gospel, which is a biannual conference held in Louisville, Kentucky, which brings together some 10,000 Reformed evangelicals from all over the world. And during that conference, I attended a breakout session that was led by David Platt, who is the president of the International Mission Board. And the breakout session was entitled, Recovering the Role of the Local Church in Missions. And this session came at a very critical time in my thinking about missions, and it was later in that year that we began individual partnerships with missionaries in addition to the regular cooperative program giving that had been a part of this church for decades. Now, if I remember correctly, David Platt gave 10 steps that pastors should take to lead their church to an active role in reaching the nations for the gospel. One of those steps had to do with teaching and preaching on the definition of missions, so as to correct some misunderstandings among the congregation as to what missions actually is. For instance, have you ever heard somebody say, we don't need to go to another country to do missions, we can do missions right here in our own town? You ever heard people say that? It's not true. It would be true if you would substitute the word evangelism for missions. It's true that we don't need to leave Nixa in order to do evangelism. It's not true that we don't need to leave Nixa in order to do missions because missions is cross-cultural evangelism. Missions is what happens when a person leaves their culture and enters into a different culture for the purpose of spreading the gospel and establishing the local church, And a person who leaves their culture and enters into a different culture for the purpose of spreading the gospel and establishing a church is what we call a missionary. Another item on Platt's list was teaching the church what Jesus meant when he commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations. A nation, an ethne in the Greek, is not synonymous with a country It's not a geopolitical entity like Mexico or China. It is a people group. It is an ethnic group. It is a people with a distinct culture and often a distinct language living in a distinct geographic area. Do you know how many distinct people groups there are represented in China? 543 of which 444 are still unreached. There are presently, at last count, 195 geopolitical nations in the world, but there are as many as 17,105 ethnes, distinct people groups, of which over 7,000 are still considered unreached. Furthermore, said Platt, we need to teach our people what it means for a people group, an ethne, to be unreached. It doesn't mean that nobody has ever spoken the gospel to somebody from that people group. It means that that people group lacks the sufficient numbers and the sufficient resources to reach their own people group, to reach their own culture without outside assistance. And it's these people, these people groups, these ethnes, that 7,000 that Jesus commissioned us to reach. What does that mean for the local church? It means that we're not done once we've sent missionaries to China. That's not what Jesus was talking about. It means we're not done when we've sent missionaries to India That's not what Jesus was talking about. It means we're not done when we've been doing missions in the United States, which has 488 distinct people groups, of which 84 in the United States are still unreached, mostly immigrant and Native American cultures. So understanding what Jesus means by all nations changes the way that we engage in missions. But it was the step that regards the missionaries themselves that struck me the hardest in Platt's breakout session. He said, teach your people to be disciple makers at home. And do not send anyone to the mission field who is not already a disciple maker in their local church. That hit hard. Platt said the churches tend to have this notion that the plane ride magically transforms somebody into a missionary, that it magically transforms somebody into a disciple maker. It doesn't. If they aren't a disciple maker when they get on the plane, they will not be a disciple maker when they get off the plane, and the results will be disastrous. In other words, you don't become missionary quality on the mission field. You become missionary quality in the local church. Why? Because missions is simply establishing local churches through the preaching of the gospel in a different culture. What do churches on the mission field do if they are true biblical churches? The answer is they do the same thing that we do here. They preach and teach the word, they gather for worship, they establish believers in the faith, and they make disciples of their neighbors. Therefore, if a missionary is unable to do local church ministry here, they won't be able to do mission work there, because mission work there is nothing but local church ministry. The Apostle Paul was a missionary. Missions was his heartbeat, far more so than pastoring. That's why he couldn't stay in any one place for too long. For instance, Paul wasn't called to have a 20-year pastorate in the church at Ephesus or Corinth or Antioch. By his own admission, he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, one, one having received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of all nations, 1-5. He says in Romans 15-20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now it's been my prayer for two years now that God would make This church, 1st Baptist Nixa, like the church at Antioch. A church that was theologically deep, evangelistically passionate, and missiologically oriented. That is, oriented to the nations. Paul was from the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch produced guys like this. So was Barnabas. So my prayer is that God would call forth missionaries from our midst, as well. But it raises the question what are missionaries like? What should we look for when thinking about who we should send overseas and who we should partner with? Romans 1 8 to 15 is a rare bit of autobiography for the Apostle Paul. Most of Romans is doctrine and instruction, and Paul doesn't insert himself in very much. But twice in this book, here in verses 8 to 15, and again in chapter 15, Paul opens his heart to his readers. And in these verses, if we listen closely, we can hear the apostle's heartbeat. We can see what makes him tick. We can detect what drives him, what he loves. And since Paul was a missionary, I think we can go a step further and say since he was the prototypical missionary missionary. He's the prototype of what all missionaries ought to strive for and what they ought to be like. I submit that we should look for the same heartbeat in our missionaries, be they short-term or long-term. That's application number one of this sermon. What kind of people should this church send overseas? People like this. What kind of People should this church support overseas and partner with overseas. People like this. If they're not like this, they're not doing missions. But as I said earlier, mission, missionaries rather are nothing other than members of local churches who do in a different culture the same thing that they were doing in this culture. Look at Paul. What was Paul doing in Antioch when God called him to the nations? Preaching the gospel, teaching, evangelizing in their synagogues, evangelizing in the marketplaces, discipling from house to house. That's what Acts chapter 11 says. What did Paul do on the mission field? Preach the gospel, taught in their synagogues, Evangelized in the marketplaces, proclaim Christ publicly and from house to house. Missionaries are not some sort of super stratum of of exalted Christians. They're just local church members whom God calls to do over there what they were doing here. Therefore, we should be able to look at this text and say, this is not just the heartbeat of a missionary. This is the heartbeat of a church member. That's application number two. The Great Commission was not given to apostles and missionaries alone. It was given to the entire church. But we will never seriously engage in the Great Commission until our heart beats like this. In today's passage, I want to point out seven marks of a missionary. And I want you to bear in mind that this list is not exhaustive. I mean, these are not the only marks that could be mentioned. We could talk about capacities for learning a foreign language. We could talk about communication skills. We could talk about ability to adapt in foreign cultures. But but here, at least, we have seven marks that are absolute musts for missions, The first mark of a missionary is that he is kingdom-focused. His heart's desire is to see the spread of the kingdom under every nation or in every nation under heaven, which means that he cannot be constricted by a narrow, self-centered, territorial view of ministry. This is clear from verse 8 where Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, you need to remember, Paul did not establish the church of Rome. He had never been to Rome. Therefore, the fact that there was a church in Rome, and not only a church, but a church whose faith was so vibrant and active as to be proclaimed in the whole world, had nothing whatsoever to do with Paul's apostolic ministry. Yet... He rejoiced in this church and in their faith and thanked God for them in the same way that he rejoiced in the faith and thanked God for the churches that he had planted. He didn't have some sort of territorial view where he thought these are my churches and those are Peter's churches and these are Apollos' churches. These are Christ's churches. And Jesus has people among all All the nations that need to be reached. This is so important because missions is a cooperative effort, it is a team sport. No one missionary and no one church will ever accomplish the Great Commission by itself. It will take all the church in every age to reach the nations. Therefore, missionaries need to realize that missions is not a zero-sum game, wherein if someone else wins, that must mean that I lose. Churches need to understand this as well. I was thinking about this a few weeks ago uh, during the last week of the Springfield Cardinals season. I took Benjamin and Isaac to a baseball game, and they were absolutely the baseball team, not my boys, were absolutely horrid. They were awful. I mean, they got absolutely destroyed. And I was thinking about how difficult it must be, how frustrating it must be to be a Springfield Cardinals fan because the moment that a player begins to excel and the team begins to take off, they get a phone call from from up top and that player is, is pulled up to the next level and someone else is sent down who wasn't producing at that level. So you're always losing your best and your brightest, and you're always stuck with those in need of remediation. You see where I'm going with this? (sighs) To be a minor league baseball fan is to constantly see all your best players taken away. But true fans, true Cardinals fans... Same thing as to say, true baseball fans. They're not frustrated by this at all. Why? Because their focus isn't narrowly constricted to the AA team at Springfield. They rejoice to see their best and their brightest called up and producing on the major league level because they have an organization wide big league focus. They rejoice. When the big league team succeeds, when the organization as a whole succeeds, and they see that they have an integral role in that process. Now, the analogy is not perfect, but you can see the point. If our church is to be a kingdom-focused, missions-oriented church, it's going to mean seeing our best and brightest taken away to serve the kingdom where they are needed. And kingdom-centered, kingdom-focused churches and people whose perspective is big, bigger than their own personal lives and bigger than their own personal church will rejoice in this like Paul rejoiced in it. And a good way to discern whether or not this mark characterizes your own heart is to ask yourself whether you rejoice when you hear of some movement of God or some work of God that doesn't have anything to do with you. Does it make your heart swell when you hear about the gospel penetrating the darkness and and unreached people groups being reached and and coming to faith in Christ. Do you love to hear stories of of intrepid missionaries who go into unreached villages and and suddenly they they find that their way has been paved before them on the power of dreams and visions, and they've just been awaiting this Jesus person to come and to share with them the gospel of salvation. Do you love stories like that? Or does it just kind of slip in one ear and out the other ear because it doesn't really have anything to do with you and doesn't really have anything to do with here? There is no place for a self-focused territorialism in missions. Therefore, those who make the best missionaries and the best church members are those who know themselves first and foremost citizens and ministers of the kingdom of Christ. I will tell you, that denominationalism is not nearly so important on the mission field as it seems to be here. If you're uncomfortable working with non-Southern Baptists, you're probably not going to want to go on the mission field because there's a bunch of non-Southern Baptists all over the world doing good work. The second mark of the missionary is that he is fervent in prayer, verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So after thanking God that there is a healthy, vibrant church in Rome, even though it was a church he didn't establish, Paul now tells the Romans that he unceasingly prays to God that he might be able to come at last to Rome to see them. Now, I don't want to make too much of this point because it's not not the main point of the passage, it's not even the main point of the clause, but it is significant. It gives us a little insight into Paul's prayer life. Paul was a man, as we know from elsewhere, of unceasing prayer. And in those prayers, his thoughts and affections turned constantly to Rome. Just think about that. He had never been to Rome, he'd never met most of the people to whom he writes, and yet he was able to tell them with a clear conscience, because how else would he be willing to call God to testify to the sincerity of his heart, that he prays for them without ceasing. And if that was true of a church they had never visited and of a people he did not know, what must his prayers and intercessions have been like for the church at Ephesus where he spent the better part of three years or the church at Corinth where he spent another year and a half with people that he knew intimately? It's no wonder that when we get to 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul's enumerating all of the sufferings which he endures for the sake of the gospel, he puts among them and even Above them, the daily burden that he feels for all the churches. And apart from other things, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fail and I am not indignant. Paul knew as a daily experience the suffering and the laboring in prayer for the churches scattered abroad. Churches he never even established, people he didn't know. A missionary then must be a man or woman who is fervent in prayer, who feels a deep affection and a pressing burden for the church at home and the church abroad, which goes back to the kingdom focus. So what kind of person should we send overseas? What kind of person do we partner with in the spread of the gospel? A person with an established ministry of fervent intercessory prayer. A person who knows how to do spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. A person who pours his or her heart out before the Lord on behalf of the church which he loves. Third, A missionary must be a man who values the local church. I've become increasingly convinced of the centrality of the local church in the work of global missions. Therefore, I've become increasingly committed to only send and support those missionaries who love, value, and need the local church because they're going to teach other people to love, value, and need the local church. Paul's words in verses 11 and 12, point me to this. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. All right? Let me point out two ways in which I see Paul's love and his estimation of the local church displayed. First, the reason Paul says he wants to go to Rome is in order to strengthen their faith through the imparting of some spiritual gift, right? Now, I want to, turn to return to that phrase in a moment, but I, but I want you to note what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I hope to come see you so that you can support me in my ministry, Now, there would be nothing inherently wrong with him saying that. In fact, he says something very similar in chapter 15, but he doesn't say it at the beginning, and that's important. In 1524, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul is not above saying that he hopes for their financial support as he ventures on to Spain. But that's not what he says in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he says the reason he longs to come to Rome is in order to benefit them, not to be benefited by them financially. He wants to impart to them some spiritual gift for the strengthening of their faith. First and foremost, he wants to benefit the local church. Why? Because he loves the local church. But second... Paul immediately backtracks, doesn't he? Paul knows that he needs the benefit of the local church as well. It's not just that the church at Rome needs what he can give them. He needs what they can give him, and he's not talking about money here. Paul senses something is not quite right in verse 11, and so he adds verse 12. It's not that there's anything untrue in verse 11. Paul, as an apostle, was specially gifted to strengthen the church. It's right and good that he should desire to do so. So what's wrong? Well, I think Paul's afraid that what he has just written might sound to the Romans somewhat presumptuous and arrogant. I cannot wait to come to Rome so that you may be benefited by my giftedness. That just, after he had said it, it just didn't sound right. And so he adds on and and corrects, or balances, rather, what he's just said. He says, you know what? When I come to Rome, I don't anticipate that the benefit's just going to flow one way. I want you to benefit from what God has given me. That's true. But I want to benefit from what God has given you. Later in Romans 15, Paul's going to express the same sentiments. 15.32, he says, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul knew that he needed the local church. He knew it. This is the same apostle who said of the church, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul knew he didn't comprise the entire body. There were members of the body that he desperately needed. And when their diversity of gifts was finally brought together on the occasion when he would come to Rome, all would be encouraged and strengthened, even Paul. So what makes a missionary, a local church, makes a missionary. Therefore, we should not send nor support a person who does not go to the field with the intent of establishing and strengthening local churches through the gospel of Christ, nor who is not an active and vital member of a local church at home. A person who does not recognize his or her desperate need For the mutual encouragement of the local church will never feel the urgency to establish a local church on the mission field. And if they're not establishing strong local churches on the mission field, then whatever it is that they're doing, they're not doing missions. Fourth, a missionary must be a man who ministers in the power of the Spirit, or a woman who ministers in the power of the Spirit. Now, I'm not getting this from verse 9 where Paul says that God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That spirit, rightfully, at least in my translation, has a little s. Paul's speaking of his own spirit. He's speaking of the depth of passion in which he ministers in the gospel. In other words, he's saying, I don't minister for a paycheck. I'm in it because I love it, because I love you. I minister with my spirit in the gospel of the son, Rather, this point comes from verse 11, where Paul mentions some spiritual gift which he possesses, which he hopes to impart to them. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, there's, there's debate as to what Paul means in that phrase, okay? Does he hope to bestow upon them a spiritual gift like the gift of tongues or the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy, That's probably not what he means because in Scripture, we don't get the idea that the apostles possessed the the spiritual gifts and could distribute them whenever and wherever they wanted them. That's not the image we get. In fact, the Bible is explicitly clear that God alone gives gifts. The Father Romans 12, 6. The Son, Ephesians 4, 11. The Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. It is they who give the gifts of the Spirit to whomever they will. So I don't think that's what Paul means. I don't think that, like at a healing crusade, he intends to gather all the people together and just sort of pass through the crowd and slay everyone in the Spirit, and then they're going to wake up, and they're going to have these new gifts and powers accessible to them. Rather, I think Paul means that the spiritual gift which he possesses, that is the gift of the apostle, he is going to minister out of that gift for their benefit. This church, to our knowledge, had never had an apostolic visit. They'd never had an apostle come to them and say, thus says the Lord. They'd never had an apostle come to them and say, let me tell you what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. How would I know? Because I was there. They'd never had the benefit of an apostle. And I think what he means is, when I come, I'm going to perform apostolic ministry in the power of the Spirit among you. Now, there are no apostles running around today, whatever some may claim, but the principle remains and can be generalized in this way. Paul did not intend to minister to the Romans in the strength of his flesh. That would have strengthened no one. Paul does not intend to go to Rome and rely upon his decades of rabbinical study and just pour out rabbinical theology on them as if they were going to be benefited by that. Paul knew that he needed to minister in the supernatural power of the Spirit if they were to be edified. Likewise, missionaries need to know what it is to minister in the Spirit's power and not in the power of the flesh. Missionaries who go to the mission field and rely on their education, they rely upon their natural strengths, they rely upon their natural talents, they rely upon their natural courage, upon their natural charisma, upon their natural leadership skills, they make messes. Because you cannot do spiritual work in the power of the flesh. And so when we talk about sending missionaries Overseas, and I'm talking about short term missions as well as long term missions. Or when we think about who we're gonna partner with and we're talking with them, I want to hear that they know John 15 5 and that they they live John 15 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing, and they know that. And they know how to tap into that vine. They know how to live by faith in the power of the Spirit. They know how to apt even if they don't know the acronym. They know the principle behind it. And they intentionally walk and minister in the life-giving, fruit-producing, church-strengthening power of the Holy Spirit. Missions is not a natural work. Therefore, you can't be natural men and perform it. Fifth A missionary must trust in the sovereignty of God. The importance of this point cannot be overstated. A missionary must know deep in his soul that his life and his ministry are in God's hands. That's the only way that he will be able to risk his life for the sake of the nations. That's the only way he will be empowered to persevere when persecution arises. And that's the only way that he will continue and endure when the fruit is slow to come. This deep trust in the sovereignty of God is what marked all the great missionaries, the David Brainerds, the John Pattons, the Adoniram Judsons, the William Careys, and many, many others. They relished and rested in the truth that God is sovereign over all creation and over all history and over all mankind and over every life and every death and every human heart. That's why they packed their coffins with them. Missions is frustrating, and there is no denying it. Travel plans will get disrupted. Planes will get delayed. Visas and passports won't come in in time. How on earth will a missionary make it if he isn't utterly convinced that all things happen according to the sovereign will of God for the good of his people and the glory of his name? If you think you are out of control in your life here, go there and try to maintain some semblance of control over your schedule. Almost no country on the face of the planet runs by as strict a schedule as the United States. So if you don't intend to take two and a half hour lunch breaks because you're all work and no fellowship, you're not going to make it unless you trust that God's in the two-and-a-half-hour lunch breaks as much as he is in the rest of the work. Let me show you how Paul made it through. Paul submitted his life and his ministry to the sovereignty of God. This is seen in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. All right, so Paul is concerned that the Romans are going to take his lack of absence or have taken his lack or his absence as a lack of affection. In other words, Paul, you're the apostle to the Gentiles. We've heard about you, but you've never come here. Why? Do you not love us? So he's insistent. That it has been his intended purpose to come to Rome many times, but each time he was prevented from doing so. By what? He doesn't say. But he does say in Romans 15 what prevented him. When he speaks about his ministry, which he's conducted from Jerusalem all the way around the Mediterranean coast to Illyricum, preaching the gospel in those places where Christ has not been named, he says in chapter 15, verse 22, this is the reason. Why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be held to my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. All right, so what Paul understands has hindered him from coming to Rome, which he has intended many times to do, were the needs of his apostolic ministry in other parts of the world, All right, But, but there's something underneath that who's driving and directing his apostolic ministry. It's not Paul, and it's not people, There's a scene in Acts 16, which is near the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, where Luke gives us insight into who is directing Paul's activities. Acts 16.6, and they, Paul and Silas and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. But when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come here to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul had learned to submit his mission's activities, his schedule, his itinerary, to the sovereign will of God. He trusted Jesus to say, no, don't go there, I want you to go here. That included when and where he ministered, and it included when he was to suffer. In Acts 20, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We want missionaries who know that their lives are in God's hands. Who know that their times are in God's hands. We need missionaries who don't do what James forbids in James chapter 4 and saying, I'm going to go do thus and such for this long and then I'm going to go and do thus and such. And James says, what do you think, you're in control of your own life? Say, if the Lord wills, I will go. Missionaries, Get that, or else they don't last, because you have absolutely no control over anything, travel, money, or otherwise, least of all, or maybe most of all, the conversion of sinners. Sixth, a missionary feels very deeply and very passionately a burden of debt to the world. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Literally, Paul says, I am a debtor. And to whom is Paul in debt? He says, I'm in debt to Greeks. That is those within the Greco-Roman world who spoke Greek, who participated in the economy, who were, who were Greeks and the barbarians. Who's that? Non-Greeks. The Gauls over in France, the Germanic tribes out on the border, even, according to the Romans, the Jews. So Greeks and non-Greeks, cultured and non-cultured, wise and foolish. This is Paul's way of encompassing the entire world. Now, I'm convinced that most people fly right through these verses on their way to verse 16 and they miss what Paul is actually saying. I think that we tend to read the word obligation or debt, depending on your translation, and assume that what Paul means is that he's under obligation to God, that he's in debt to God. The idea being that God has given this him this gracious salvation, and now he's got to make some return on God's investment, and so he's going to go to the nations. He's going to the nations in order to pay God back because he's in debt to God. Is that what he says? That is not what he says. In fact, that is the anti gospel. Salvation is of grace alone, and grace, by its very nature, cannot impose a debt. Grace is, by its very nature, free. If you try to pay God back, to recompense God for the good that he's given you, then suddenly you've nullified grace, and you're back under law, and you stand condemned in your sins. Paul is not a debtor to God. He knows he's not a debtor to God. He doesn't owe God anything. Why? Because God has saved him freely, graciously. He is not a debtor to God. He's a beneficiary of God. He's an heir of God. He's a son of God. No, Paul says, I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. I'm a debtor to the nations. I'm a debtor to the world. How? How is Paul in the world's debt? The answer, I think, is that Paul, the self-described chief of sinners, was the least deserving of God's mercy, and yet he had received mercy. And so Paul feels himself something like a cancer patient who stumbles upon a cure for cancer, and now he has a moral obligation to share that cure with other cancer patients. Or like a a man on a sinking ship who stumbles upon a sufficient supply of life vests has a moral debt to the others to share the vests. So Paul feels a deep indebtedness to other sinners, to all other sinners, without distinction, to share the gospel of salvation, to share the good news of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in Christ, to all those who, like him, were dying of the disease of sin and were drowning in the gulf of God's wrath. He's got the cure. He's got the life preserver. And he owes a moral debt to those who need the cure, to those who need the life preserver. He's not in debt to God. He's in debt to the perishing masses because he's not perishing. And he's got that thing, namely the gospel, which will save them from perishing. That's what makes a missionary. A missionary, listen to me very closely, does not go to the foreign field in an attempt to pay God back. And many of them try. I haven't been very spiritual this year. I've I've been focused on other things. So I'm going to go to the mission field to show God how serious I am, to, to make up for the way I've squandered the last year. That motivation will never, ever carry a missionary through the dangers and trials that accompany the missionary life because guilt is an awful motivator. Gratitude is little better. Only grace is a sufficient motivation for missions. And grace imposes no debt. A missionary goes to the foreign field because he feels a sense of moral obligation to other sinners. The cultured and the uncultured. The business people living in the city, the tribesmen living in the bush. Because he's received mercy even though he was just as unqualified as the rest. That's the motivation of grace rather than the motivation of guilt that lies as the foundation of missions. Guilt says, God's mercy has indebted me, I must pay him back, I'll go on a mission trip. Grace says, God's mercy has freed me, I must go show other people the way to this freedom. Guilt motivates out of bondage and debt. Grace motivates out of freedom and joy. There is one final mark of the missionary, and it's found in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A missionary is unashamed of the gospel because he believes in its power to save, because he has experienced its power to save. He's seen its power at work in his life and in the lives of others and in the life of the church. This gospel and its saving power will be the focus of the next 11 chapters of Romans and it will be the theme of next week's sermon as we unpack verses 16 and 17. But fundamentally, a missionary must be someone who knows, experiences, experiences, and believes in the power of the gospel to save. So this morning, we've looked at Paul's missionary heart, and my argument has been that all missionaries, all of them, short-term, long-term, old, young, all missionaries ought to reflect these same marks, or else they're doing it wrong. It doesn't matter whether they're going to China to Cuba, they're going for six weeks or six years. If a person doesn't bear these marks, they have no business going on the field. So look again at these marks. What is a missionary? Number one, he is kingdom-focused. Number two, he is fervent in prayer. Number three, he values the local church Number four, he ministers in the power of the Spirit. Number five, he entrusts his life and ministry to the sovereignty of God. Number six, because of the free grace which he knows and relishes and cherishes and has experienced, he feels a deep indebtedness, not to God, but to the world, to show them the same freedom and grace that he loves. And number seven, he believes in the power of the gospel. Look at that list. Ought that not characterize every one of our members? That is not the description of some apostolic super-Christian. That's the description of a church member. So as we close, I want you to pray that God would form these marks in your heart In order that you and this church may join in the great task of preaching the gospel for the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of the name.